0: Today's reading is from Judges eight twenty two through 27. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. And Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Emily. Good morning, Arcadia. How y'all doing? Two quick items before I get started. Uh, First of all, um, just want to acknowledge the job that Vince did last week. Isn't he terrific? Yeah, good. Yeah, that's, yes, definitely. Um, uh, The reason we wanted to do that was to make sure that you knew how good things are in Flagstaff, and that if you're ever up in Flagstaff, I know we have a lot of people that like to spend time up there in the summer, uh, you have a you have a really good church to go to. So uh, glad that Vince got to be here. Vince is uh, pre-redemption. He was part of Praxis for a number of years. And uh, so anyway, really glad to have him. Uh, second thing, I haven't done this in a while, and, and I just was reminded of it again this morning. I just want to mention again, how appreciative I am of uh, the musicians who lead us every Sunday morning and lead us into worship. I think they do a great job, and it's just wonderful to have them. Uh, what a great team of people to, uh, to be able to lead us in that aspect. So uh, if you're new, we are glad that you are with us. It's a big day, kind of a family day at Redemption Arcadia. We're going to Uh, eventually get to talking about our year in review for 2015 and look ahead a little bit to 2016, some exciting news. Uh, My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia. Redemption is one church with 10 congregations, but every congregation uh, at the local level has a lead pastor and a local elder board, and uh, we function in many ways autonomously, but we also believe that we are better together as Redemption Church, one church with the 10 uh, congregations. So, uh, you're at the Arcadia Flavor of Redemption Church. We're glad you, that you're here. We've been going through uh, the book of Judges lately. This is a book that is uh, very seldomly preached in, uh, in, in churches. It's a dark book. It's a difficult book. It's a challenging, uh, very challenging book. I like to say that the Motion Picture Association of America has rated it NC-17. And, and uh, as we go through this, you, you see why. Uh, but I love Old Testament narrative. I love the Old Testament, of course, but especially uh, in particular Old Testament narratives, which is this is a kind of a historical narrative, because I, I think Old Testament uh, texts generally teach us three things that we need to hear repeatedly. Number one, uh, they teach the def- definitely the fallenness and foolin- foolishness of human nature. The fallenness and foolishness of human nature. It just reminds us and and certainly we can see ourselves in, in a lot of the things that happen in the Old Testament. Uh, but that leads to the second thing. It also, uh, the Old Testament is constantly showing us the holiness and loving faithfulness of God. And without that, we would certainly be lost. As, as fallen as we are, and as much as we, <clears throat> as Judges 2.16 would say, as much as we whore after false gods, God still pursues us and loves us and saves us. Uh, But here's the third thing that uh, the Old Testament teaches us uh, throughout, but especially in Old Testament narratives. If you choose to neglect what you know about God, and let me make a very important differentiation here. Uh, If you choose to neglect what you know about God, not what you think you know or what you would like to know. In other words, uh, many of us, what we think we know about God is that God is really just like us and God thinks like us and, and God would do things the way we would want to do them. That's not what I'm talking about. Here's what I'm talking about. If you choose to neglect what you do know about God, and here's what you really do know in your heart of hearts, you you know that he's God and you're not. (laughs) And the minute you begin to ignore that, the minute you begin to neglect that, then I can guarantee you life is not going to go well. Life is going to be a challenge even acknowledging who God is and having God help you and having God live through you in the form of the resurrected Christ, even then it's going to be hard, but it's going to be a disaster if you rebel against God and choose to uh, ignore him. The big idea for the entire book of Judges is this. In those days, there was no God, I'm sorry, there was no king in Israel, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel, And of course, many of us look at that, and we think chronologically, and we realize it's prior to uh, the installation of King Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then all of the rest, and we think, oh, the uh, the author's talking about the human kings in Israel who came later in 1 Samuel, and that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that in Israel in those days, the people of Israel, God's people, rejected God as king. He is the true king, Yahweh is the real king, and they were rejecting God. As king, So in those days, there was no king. Now, God was there, certainly. Uh, God, was, God was working in the lives of some, and, and when he wasn't working in the lives, he was there observing and watching, maybe even sometimes shaking his head and tisk, tisking a while. But, but he's there, but, but they are not acknowledging him as the true king. They're not acknowledging him as God. And when we don't acknowledge God as the king, the true king, we do what's right in our own eyes, and disaster follows. So that's the, that's the big idea of Judges, and you see that theme, you see those verses throughout the book of Judges. The author of Judges continues to remind us of that. Uh, today's a big day. We have to get through three chapters, and each chapter represents a main point. So we have three main points as well today. And the big idea today is very simple. It's three words. Here's the big idea. It's not us. It's not us. Just as we go through this material, just be reminded it's not us. It's not us. We're not all that. Uh, We are not as special as we think we are. So, chapter 7. Let me just review a little bit of what happens in chapter 6, especially if you weren't here last week. Uh, We experienced that uh, Israel had fallen into sin again, and the Midianites were now oppressing them, and they oppressed them for seven years. And, and the Midianites, the way they were oppressing them is, is they didn't come in and occupy the land, but they were, uh, they were marauders, they were raiders. They would come in at just the right time every year during the harvest and, and when things started to go well for Israel, and they would plunder the land and take all the spoil back. And when they, by the way, when they plundered the land, they would plunder it sexually as well as plunder its assets and they would take all of that stuff, and then they would leave Israel and run out and go back to their own home. So they weren't there to occupy or dwell, but they were coming in to plunder the land. And, and if you think about the way the, the Israelites lived for seven years, they knew this was going to happen essentially every year. And they knew it was coming, and yet it took them seven years before they finally got low enough and miserable enough to cry out to God. They finally cry out to him after seven years. Imagine if, you're, uh, if you have children... And pretty soon, the children begin to see the pattern, and, and, and your children begin to ask you every year, are, are the marauders going to come again? Are the plunderers going to come again? Are those Midianites going to come again and take everything that we have and everything that we've worked so hard for? And the parents have to say, yes, we're going to have to go live in the caves, in the hills for a while, and it's not going to be any fun. Seven years. So they finally cry out, <clears throat> and you experience in chapter 6 the call of Gideon by God, which is interesting because it kind of resembles the call of Moses and the call of of, of Esther that in, the, in the fact that Gideon put, first puts up a fight and resists. Uh, and then you experience Gideon questioning God, which is fascinating to me. All of these problems that are happening to Israel are Israel's fault. The people of God rebel against God, and so they are experiencing the consequences of that rebellion. And Gideon's first questions, just like you and me for God when things are going bad, is, God, why are you doing this? Where are you? What happened to You? The biggest question that people asked after 9-11 was, where was God on 9-11? I'll tell you exactly where he was. He was on his throne. He was watching what was happening. He just didn't intervene. Well, what a nasty God. Well, he got our attention, didn't he? He got our attention. So God is there. And Gideon, I believe, is asking the wrong questions. By the way, notice how God answers his questions. Uh, God doesn't answer Gideon's questions. He only answers the questions that Gideon should have answered in chapter 6. It's just like Jesus. When people come to Jesus in the New Testament asking him questions, Jesus likes to answer the questions they should have asked instead of the questions they're asking because we're always skewed on what we're trying to figure out. And God wants to point us in, in the right way. And then finally, uh, the, the chapter ends with several, ta- several times Gideon tests God. I want to make sure that you're really God, and you're really going to do what you say you're going to do. And God does these three different miracles, amazing miracles. And finally Gideon kind of goes, well, okay, I guess you're God. But even after all of that, even after Gide- showing Gideon all of these things that if he'd show you and I, you and I surely would think that we'd know he's really God. Uh, Even then, Gideon struggles, and we're going to see some of those struggles in the text today. So now, chapter 7, after all of Gideon's encounters and faith tests with God, it's time to take on the Midianites, and he assembles uh, the group to take on the Midianites. And that leads us to main point number one, which we see in chapter 7, which is this. You cannot save yourself. You and I cannot save ourselves. So Gideon is able to call and assemble 32,000 Israelite men to fight the Midianites, and they assemble those 32,000 near the Midianite camp. Now, the 32,000, that sounds like a lot, but we also know from Judges 8.10 that already the Israelites are outnumbered by the Midianites because the Midianites have 135,000, so they're outnumbered four to one. Even so, God looks at them and says this in chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, "My own hand has saved me." So he's telling Gideon, "If you go up against the Midianites with thirty-two thousand and and you win, you will see that as your victory, and you will begin to boast over me and my power, and say it was all you and it was nothing had nothing to do uh, with God." And so uh, God says, "You need to call the thirty-two thousand down," and they take. 22,000 away. And now they're down to 10,000, and you're thinking, okay, 10,000, we could still pull this off, a little bit harder, but we can still pull this off. But then God says this to Gideon. Verse 4, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. What? (laughs) 10,000, it's still too many? And then through this very odd drinking uh, text and test, that we really could, scholars noodle over this text of the whole drinking test, how you drink the water. They noodle, for centuries they've noodled over this. Uh, Here's what you need to know. They call another 9,700 people away. And now Gideon is left with 300. Now God says, ah, at last. Now I can work. It's not us, y'all. It's God. We, We need to make sure we get that out of this text. Here's the thing, you and I really would like God to work miraculously in our lives. And by the way, if you're saved, if you know Jesus, he already has worked a miracle in your life, changing your heart. But we want him to work miraculously in our lives. And then so many of us, myself included, we ask for a miracle and then we set out to work towards that miracle. (laughs) The very definition of a miracle is that you and I can't do it. Only God can do it. He supernaturally intervenes into situations, into natural law, into science, into philosophy. Whatever it is, he intervenes. It's only him that can do it. Jesus says, what is impossible with man is what's possible with God. That's when miracles begin to happen. And by the way, that includes our salvation. That's what what God is telling Gideon right here. I don't want you to think that you saved yourself. I am the one who is going to save you. God very specifically says, I do not want you boasting about how you saved yourselves. Uh, We have to make it obvious that it's not you, it's me. I know for some of you that watch Seinfeld, that sounds a lot like George Costanza. Here's what you need to know. Even George Costanza is stealing material from God, okay? But here's here's the point, Costanza aside. You and I so badly, so desperately want to be in charge of our own destiny. Even our culture tells us that. Just make your own future. Make your own destiny. You can do it. You're strong enough. Pull yourself up. You're special. You're unique. You're smart enough. You're strong enough. You can do this. We want to make our own destiny, especially and including our salvation, our fulfillment, and our deliverance. But the truth is is, is that God's sovereignty, even over our salvation, is clear and complete all throughout the Scriptures. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works that no one may boast. For we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Where's the emphasis here, the repeated emphasis? It's on God. God did this. God works. We owe everything to God. It's not us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is Paul, one of my favorite passages, because all of us have some measure of a thorn in our flesh, even though we may not acknowledge it or realize it, we all have thorns in our flesh. Paul writes, to keep me from becoming conceited, to keep me humble, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God had been giving to Paul... To keep me from becoming conceited, to keep me humble, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Again, when I went to to, um, uh, college and was taking uh, the the letters of Paul, one of the longest essay questions that I ever had on an exam was, what are the potential thorns in Paul's flesh uh, that he's dealing with in 2 Corinthians 12? So this is an academic question. And, and I always thought, well, oh, I'm studying it academically, and I have the seven different possibilities that scholars for 2,000 years have decided is the thorn in his flesh, but really, that's not the point here. You're missing the point if you want to know what the thorn is. The point of the thorn is that it keeps him humble, which is what God wants. God wants our humility, not our pride, not our conceit, not our arrogance, and so I prayed three times with the Lord. I pleaded with him three times that it should leave me. Okay, I do the same thing. God, please, <laughs> please miraculously take my bunion away. And then last May, I had bunion surgery. I had a bunion in my flesh, okay? So that was my, my thorn. God said, uh, but God said to me, no, 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 no. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Here you go. When we finally come to the end of ourselves, that's when God becomes real. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content. Here you go. Boy, these are words for our culture that they don't like, but we need need to hear them. And I wish our culture would hear them, too. Then I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardships. No safe spaces for Paul. With hardships persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong because my strength is not mine. It comes from God. It is not us. Have I pounded this sufficiently this morning so far? Then verse... (laughs) I'm depressed too, okay? It'll get better. (laughs) Then verse 9, God says to Gideon, Now arise, go down against the camp of the Midianites, for I have given the camp of the Midianites and the Midianites into your hand. I've given them into your hand. See, God works when we're at the end of ourselves. It's a great story. It was nighttime. Uh, scholars believe that it was the time of the, sort of the changing of the guard. And if you know anything about how that works, there's already a little bit of confusion when there's people up and moving around in the middle of the night and the changing of the, of the guard. And then the 300 men of Gideon surrounding the camp in the hills, they each one had a trumpet and a lantern, a, gla- a glass uh, lantern of some sort, and they surrounded a camp, and at Gideon's signal, they all blew their trumpets and smashed their lanterns, their jars, and at this noise, when this noise occurred in the middle of the night, God caused such great confusion among the Midianites that the Midianites mistook each other for the enemy and drew their swords and started fighting with each other, and 120,000 Midianites were felled by their own swords." 120,000 of them, and the 300 guys with Gideon are kind of standing around watching this happen. And then 15,000 of them, the remaining 15,000, escaped and ran. And then the Israelites took off in pursuit of them, and they captured two of their princes, Oreb and Zaeb, great names, and they killed them, and they brought their heads to Gideon, NC-17. So there's a great victory. And Gideon should be so thankful to God. And Gideon should permanently venerate God in his heart in mind, right? Right? We wish. Look at verse 18. The author of this lets us know, even early <clears throat> before the, the fight that Gideon's going to begin to have a problem. Here. Verse 18. When I blow the trumpet, Gideon said, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. There you go. Gideon found a way to slip himself in there somehow. God's doing all of this, but uh, he's doing it through me, and why wouldn't he do it through me? We all struggle with this. We all struggle with this. And then chapter 8, after this great victory, becomes a wonderful example of of a truth in our lives that you and I never seem to get right. You and I know that we probably should cry out to God when things are really bad, when we're desperate. We know that. The problem is, is that we often fail to seek God when things are good, and frankly, very often that's when we need Him more than when things are bad. Because when things are good... We figure it's us and not God, and we really don't need God. The person who is self-assured rarely prays. The person who is self-assured rarely prays. Ben Franklin once said this. He said, for every hundred men that you can bring me who can handle adversity, I can maybe scrounge up one man who can handle success. You hear that? That's our problem. It's one of our problems. And I would say this, until we trust God in every situation, not just as fire insurance, not just when things are tough, until we trust God in every situation, you and I will never know the true and full adequacy of God in all things. The true and full adequacy of God in all things. So then here comes chapter 8, and you have main point number 2. Here's the main point the problem of pride, Gideon's success actually becomes for him a source of arrogance, conflict, and self-promotion at the expense of godliness, contentment, and even at the expense of some of his kinsmen. So there's three challenges that Gideon faces in chapter 8. Here's, chap- here's challenge number one. When the 15,000 Midianites fled, Gideon called on the tribe of Ephraim for help. So they've got their 300. The Midianites flee, and he goes to Ephraim and says, hey, can you help us chase down these guys, and Ephraim did. In fact, they're the ones, the tribe of Ephraim, is the one, they're the ones that captured uh, Oreb and Zeab, the princes. But then the leaders of Ephraim come, and they confront Gideon. And they say, w- we want to know why you didn't call us at the beginning of the military campaign, and why you waited until the end. Why didn't you call us at the beginning? It's interesting, even though this is very clearly the Lord's victory, the Ephraimites felt slighted by the human glory that they now saw Gideon beginning to get. Even when God does the miraculous, people will find ways to envy and exalt human beings. Even when it's clear that God works, people are going to figure out how to envy and exalt human beings. And in humility, Gideon handles this challenge very well. He he says to the Ephraimites, he says, hey, you guys were the ones that got the princes, even we couldn't do that. Look at what you did. And the leaders of Ephraim are are, are pacified. Okay, all right. Good one, Gideon. Challenge number two, however, is not handled by Gideon as magnanimously as he handled Ephraim. Unfortunately, Gideon has to read his press releases he gets full of himself and he decides that he's going to do a lot more than God actually called him to do. So the 15,000 flee, but they flee the land given to Israel. They're chased out of Israel now. They're no longer in the land of Israel. Yeah, they're still alive and they could pose a threat, but they're also pushed completely out. So there's really no real reason anymore to pursue them. If you understand what God's purpose was in the, con- the original conquest of the land in, J- in Joshua, there's no reason at this point to pursue them beyond the borders of Israel. But Gideon is on a success high. He's become very self-righteous. He wants more power. And there were still two princes, Zeba and Zalmunna, the Z guys. And he wants them. He wants to take care of them too. And as he's going through the last of the Israelite, Cities, Succoth and Penuel. He stops in each of those cities. His 300 men are exhausted and hungry. And he stops in each of those cities and asks the city leaders for, um, for some food and for some, uh, some accommodations to be able to help them rest and get ready to go on. And the city leaders in both of those cities refuse. Now, why would they refuse? Gideon is doing the Lord's work. Well, these cities are actually on the border of Israel, and they know that if Gideon, with only his 300 men is not successful in taking care of these 15,000 Midianites, that when the Midianites reassemble and come back into Israel to attack, Succoth and Penuel are going to be the first two cities that they attack. And they might attack them with great malice because they chose to help Gideon. And so it's not a nice refusal, but it's a refusal that, if you think about it, is certainly understandable. It's reasonable, but Gideon did not see it that way. And when they refuse help to Gideon, he looks at the city leaders and he says, Let me tell you something. When I take care of these guys and these 15,000, we're going to come back and we're going to teach you a lesson as well because you did not help us. And he does. Gideon becomes the first judge in this book to kill his own kinsmen in the execution of his duties as a judge. Certainly, that was not what God had in mind, right? It's interesting. God is all over chapter 6. He's all over chapter 7. But his counsel to Gideon is suspiciously absent in chapter 8. Think about it. It's conspicuously absent. Gideon is making that horrible turn from humility to arrogant pride. And it cost him the lives. It cost the lives of, of many of his kinsmen. So, have you ever gotten so full of yourself that you're completely blind to others? That ever happened to you? Anybody want to come up and take the mic? And ex- okay, never mind. So. so, then we get to uh, challenge number three in chapter eight. I call challenge number three this. It's really long. Sorry. Lip service, false humility, and false humility. I keep saying false humility. What is false humility? When we think it's humid in Phoenix, I don't understand that, okay? False humility and the adoration of man. Let me read this passage to you that Emily read for us uh, earlier, starting at chapter uh, chapter 8, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, immediately, I would add, let me make a request of you. Each one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, those were some nice collars. I added that. And Gideon made an ephod, ephod of it, put it in his city in Ophrah. This is Gideon's city, Ophrah. And all Israel whored after the ephod there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Guess what? You might not realize this, but there's often a chasm of difference between what a person says. And how a person acts, that might be a revelation to some of us here. The people said to Gideon, they come to him and they say, hey, you're awesome, be our king. And you think about that. Think about how hard that must have been to resist. And Gideon has the exact correct answer. He says, my family and I will not rule over you because God will rule over you. He's the rightful ruler. But then immediately, immediately after saying that, immediately after denying the kingship, he makes a demand that only a king would make. And he begins to behave as if he is the king. And the rest of his life, he behaved as the king. He even names one of his sons, Abimelech, my father is king. His son was named, my father is king. So there, there, There's no guesswork here. He thinks he's the king. He says the right thing, but he's doing the wrong thing. Lip service. False humility. In the New Testament, James calls this double-mindedness. Gideon is giving the appearance of godliness, and then he's milking it for all it's worth. That's never happened before. He confiscates about $900,000 worth of gold, and then he fashions an ephod out of it. Now, what's an ephod? An ephod is a, a sheath, it's a tunic that was Part of the priestly ordinances worn by the high priest of Israel. The high priest of Israel. Israel already had a high priest. And he's a Levite, which is what God wants. A a descendant of Aaron. He already had an Israelite, a, a high priest. So Gideon, who is not a Levite, he's not a descendant of Aaron, and without God's consent and without God's counsel, sets himself up as a rival high priest. So he's not only the king, but now he thinks he's the high priest. With all the world, with all the power and the status and the worldly benefits, and then the ephod itself becomes an idol. Verse twenty-seven. And all Israel hoard after the ephod, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Here's the problem with pride and lip service and living for the approval of man. The problem is, is that it always leads you to be ensnared. It leads me to be ensnared. It always leads you and I to be enslaved, and it leads us to prostitute ourselves. You know what else Gideon did? This is the behavior of, of of a king who's really full of himself. He took not one wife, but many wives. He had many wives, and then that wasn't even enough. We know of at least one concubine that he had in a different city. So he had wives and at least one mistress, probably more than one mistress. He refused to be king, but he's acting like a king. He's like Xerxes before Xerxes was king. You ever heard of someone starting fast and then fading? That's Gideon. He'd had a great run. But then, like so many, he began to worship himself rather than remembering God. That's a problem. And it actually leads to what is easily one of the darkest chapters in all of the Bible, which is Judges chapter 9. So Judges chapter 9, main point number three, the problem of lusting after power. Or you could just say the problem of power. Now, we're told at the end of chapter 8 that as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites turned once again feverishly to false gods, to the Baals, and they forgot Yahweh. And in addition, they also treated the family of Gideon very badly, even though he was their judge and deliverer. Enter Abimelech. This is the son who was named, my father is king. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, who is is Gideon, that's Gideon's other name, he went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Gideon rule over you, or that one rule over you, Abimelech being the one? Remember also that I am your bone and flesh. (laughs) This guy is so manipulative. Now, again, God is essentially absent from this text. He's not absent from the universe or the situation or what's going on, but he's absent from this text, his counsel. Also notice that up until now, every other judge that we've had in the history of Israel was called by God. Who calls Abimelech? Abimelech. Abimelech calls himself. Beware of people who want to take charge without being called. Now, Abimelech was one of Gideon's 70-plus sons. He had more than 70 sons. But he's the only one that we know of whose mother was not a wife of Gideon. She was a concubine, a prostitute, and she lived in a different city. She lived in Shechem. Uh, Gideon's home uh, was Ophrah. She's in Shechem. So Gideon probably uh, met up with her while he was on some sort of a business trip or something. And she became pregnant, had Abimelech. Abimelech was eventually moved back to Ophrah. But his people in his town are really in Shechem. And because his mother was a concubine and not an actual wife of Gideon, Abimelech was not in line for any of the inheritance of, of Gideon. He was not in the will when they read what all 70 sons were getting, Abimelech was left off. So he just decides, oh, I'm just going to take it. I'm just going to take it for myself. And, and Abimelech uses this entire situation as a political maneuver to gain power for himself. He goes and he says to his family, you want these 70 guys that you don't even know in a different city, my half-brothers, you want them to rule over you or do you want me? I'm, I'm really a Shechemite and, and I'm, I'm actually family. And so they heard him and they, they got a political action committee together and they went out and they, they started to, to, they hit the campaign trail for Abimelech. And they lobby the people and the people pronounce Abimelech king. And then they give him 70 shekels of silver from the coffers, the treasury of the house of Baal in Shechem. So from their false gods, the Canaanite gods, they take money from that, where they had been worshiping false gods and giving money. They took money, 70 shekels of silver, they give it to Abimelech. Abimelech uses that money to go and hire a, 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 an army. And then they go and they march into Ophrah and they kill Gideon's other 70 sons. Except one. Gideon is the first... To kill fellow Israelites in the execution of his duties, Abimelech, his son, is now the first one to kill his own family in the execution of his duties, even though God hadn't called him. So all the brothers, half brothers, are killed, except one, Jotham. Jotham manages to escape, he survives, and then Jotham goes up to Shechem and he preaches a sermon to the leaders of Shechem. And it's interesting if you read through it and how it describes, he kind of pops up out of the hills and preaches from the hills because he doesn't want to go down there and actually face these guys because they'll just kill him. You're the one that got away. We'll just kill you. So he wants to preach, and then if they get too close, then he can dart down and get out of there. But he wants to make his point, and he preaches this sermon. It is the most famous sermon that nobody knows about. <laughs> it's a magnificent sermon. It's, it's an allegory. It's, 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 a messi- it's the message of the trees. So he says, uh, here's what happened. All these trees in Israel, and they decided they wanted a king. Well, who should be king? And so they they see the olive tree, the olive tree big and strong with the olives and and making olive oil. And wow, the olive tree is fantastic. So they go to the olive tree and they go, hey, would you please be our king? And the olive tree says, no. I like just being an olive tree. Thanks anyway. So they say, okay, how about oh, how about the fig tree? Let's go to the fig tree, the fig tree, big, beautiful, lush, green leaves and and the and the succulent fruit and that, that oh the fig tree, that'll the fig tree will make a great king. And so they go to the fig tree and they say, Fig tree, be our king. And the fig tree says, No. I got this gig now with the Keebler elves and we're making fig newtons and I'm just really busy and it's going well. I just forget it. Okay? So then they go to the vine. Now it's not, they're not even going to a tree now. They're going to the vine. Grapes, wine, ah, oh, the vine. The vine will be a wonderful king, wonderful ruler over us, please. And the vine says, no, thank you, busy. Finally, the trees go to the bramble. <laughs> the bramble doesn't even sound good. The bramble. They go to the bramble. You know what a bramble is? A bramble is a good-for-one-thing shrub, and that one thing is as kindling for your fire. That's all the bramble can do. That's all it's used for. And they go to the bramble, and they go, Would you be our king? And the bramble goes, Yeah, sure. I've got nothing else going on. I'm qualified. I'm hot. And they get the bramble. Obviously, Abimelech is the bramble. Jotham closes his sermon, so it's not just the point isn't just to insult Abimelech, but he has a main point. Here it is. He then says to the leaders of Shechem, he says, if you selected Abimelech as your king and you did it all above board with integrity and you were not in any way, shape, or form involved at the evil that Abimelech has committed now as the king, if you were not involved, which they were, they gave him the money, if you were not involved, then so be it. I can live with that. But if you were involved in any way, shape, or form, guess what? You're going to face judgment. There's going to be trouble. And there was trouble for Shechem. And there was trouble for Abimelech, too. So so far, we've had all of these judges that, that judged Israel for many, many years. And during the time that they judged, there was peace in the land. Abimelech judged for three years, and then he was destroyed. And there was never any peace in the land during the time that he was judging. Be very careful of people who are desperate to rule over you. Be very, very careful of them. God was never consulted. Treachery does not go unpunished. And the prosperity of the wicked is short and fickle. Let me read what happens in verses 22 through 25 of chapter 9. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. And God, now God's acting, he sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Weren't they the guys that made him king? Yes. That the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerobbaal, the 70 sons of Gideon, might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along that way, and it was told to Abimelech. Now, let me make a very important distinction here. God did not cause the evil. He used the evil. He used the evil in order to incite this situation because he knew it had to be dealt with. Remember what God said through Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things, not just good things, but all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So God can even use evil for good results, and he does here. But I'll tell you, in a human perspective, this is not turning out well. Treachery will not go unpunished. So verses 26 through 49 are Abimelech making war against Shechem, the very town he lobbied to become king. Think that fascinating? Here you go. It's 2016. By the way, I say this every four years. It's not just this year. But it's 2016. What happens in 2016 every four years? Election. Presidential election. You know what? We get what we ask for as human beings. Just remember that. The minute you and I begin to place all of our faith in a man or a woman to solve all of our problems and deliver us, it will come undone. Now hear me, I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm not telling you not to be involved in the political process. I think more Christians should be involved in the political process. But if you think that whoever is running for president, and at this point, Hillary or the Donald, either one of them, if you think they're going to solve even one of your problems, let alone all of your problems, I'm sorry to tell you, you are putting your money on the wrong person. We need to have more faith in God. And we get what we ask for. And Abimelech, not that I have an opinion about that, but Abimelech's military campaign against Shechem ends with the destruction of the city of Shechem. His city. And the leaders of Shechem all run into the Tower of Baal there because they're hoping to be saved from the destruction and they are burned. So there's some irony here. They run into the tower of their false god, which didn't protect them. And the other irony, of course, is that the bramble, Abimelech, burns the leaders of Shechem. It's just wonderful irony here. The problem, though, is that the bloodlust of Abimelech is still not satisfied. He decides he's mad at another town now. Look at verses 50 through 57. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, which is another town, a completely different town. And he encamped against the Bez and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city. And all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled into the strong tower, and they shut themselves in. And they went up on the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it. And he drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull." I'm telling you, you're missing a lot if you don't read the Old Testament. There's some good stuff in here, man. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and he said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. Now everyone wants him dead, right? (laughs) And the young man, his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw... Watch this. Now, when the, son of, when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Okay, we're done, finally. Praise God, Abimelech is dead. We can go home now and just live our lives. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam, the son of Gideon. Hey, are you someone who lusts for power, for power's sake? Please take a lesson from Abimelech. Treachery will not go unpunished. And, and, and what is it that Jesus said? Jesus, the great king, the great judge, the one true savior, the one true deliverer, what did he say? He said, I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. All right, I'm going to wrap up now. I want to go back to Gideon and the ephod and make two points that I think are important for us. Here's point number one. Pride and humility are really tricky things, y'all. Pride and humility, very, very tricky. Uh, Jesus very distinctly calls us to humility. In fact, we can't even be saved without humility. And he tells us to stuff our pride. Paul also says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing, not one thing, Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider everyone else better than yourself. Look not just to your interests, but also you are to look to the interests of others. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Then comes destruction. When pride comes, then comes the fall. But with humility comes wisdom with humility comes knowledge. Again, I mentioned Ben Franklin earlier. One of the biographers of Ben Franklin talked about how Ben Franklin uh, developed a list of virtues that he wanted to live his life out by. Things like honesty and integrity and, and, and hard work and kindness. And he wanted to be a peacemaker. One of those virtues that he wanted to have in his life was humility. That was one of the seven or eight virtues. And every night he would journal and he would recount during his day, well, was I courteous today? Did I love people? Was I, did, I, did I work hard? Did I practice humility? And at one point, he got to where he had 11 or 12 days in a row where he felt like he had been humble. And he became very proud of how humble he was. Are you so humble that you're proud of it? And you put your humility on display for people so that they can look in awe at you at how humble you are? This is tricky stuff here. Gideon, Abimelech, they all fell to it in different ways. They all fell to it. They weren't truly humble. Second thing is the ephod. You go back to that passage again that Emily read this morning. Chapter 8, verses 22 through 27. The ephod, the the thing that you wear on the outside, beautiful, million-dollar gold tunic. It's so amazing how you and I look so quickly and so intently for legitimacy on our outsides through our image, through our appearance. One of the fastest-growing industries in, in our country today is image management. People want the right image. Apparently, it doesn't matter what's on the inside. If you've got the right package, everything's going to be fine. The, the ephod was, a, was an outer sign of honor, purity, righteousness, and wisdom. That's what it was. And only the high priest got to wear it. But what if on the inside, you're just a wretch? What if on the inside, you're just a wretch? As Jesus said, what if on the inside, you're just dead bones and you're in a whitewashed tomb? I want you to think about what our ephods are today. Do you have a list of virtues that you're trying to live your life by, like Ben Franklin? Is that your ephod? People say, why are you the person you are? Do you say Jesus or do you go to your list of virtues? No matter what, without Christ, Ben Franklin could never be truly virtuous. You understand that? He found hope in his list, and his list let him down. It was an ephod. How about a moral, moral codes? Everyone's got a moral. You understand, every person has a moral code that they live their life by. They may not know God or Jesus from a bramble, but every person has some sort of a moral code. Here you go. For those of you that read the books or watched the series, even Dexter had a moral code. Do you understand that? He's a serial killer with a moral code who literally thought he was better than other serial killers because of his moral code. We all have moral codes of some sort. I stand for this. I'm this kind of person. I don't, I don't like that, and, and I, I believe in my heart that this is right. It's an ephod. Without Christ, it's an ephod. It may look good, but it doesn't really have any power. Good causes? Yeah, I just <laughs> I, I bring this up all the time. Uh, I got the bumper sticker and the t-shirt, okay? I I gave $15 so that we can fix this problem that probably will never be fixed. Now, there's nothing wrong with good causes. There really isn't. Unless you want to make them, you want to use them Primarily to make you look righteous and good. If the only reason you're associated with a good cause is so you can talk about it to other people and make yourself feel better about yourself, it's an ephod. That's all it is. Save the whales, but you don't need to tell anybody about it, okay? Because then it becomes an ephod. Here's one, here's one, here's one of my favorites, okay? This is one of the biggest ephods going now today: social media rants. It's an ephod. Look at me. I can speak out anonymously where nobody can get at me against something. Look how righteous I am. It's an ephod. It's all it is. You know what Paul says in Romans chapter 1? He says, claiming to be wise, they were actually fools because they exchanged the worship of the real God, the creator God, for that which has been created. All of these things that we're talking about here, all of these ephods, all been created that's not god has no power here's one more one more ephod for you here you go this might confuse some of you but i want to talk about it here's another ephod going to church singing in a choir walking around with your bible Wait, Frank, a couple weeks ago, you were talking about how if we don't go to church every Sunday, we'll forget God. If we don't study the Bible, we'll forget God. That we should be people who sing songs to God. What's the deal? It sounds like you're contradicting yourself. I'm not, and here's why. If the only reason you're coming to church and carrying around a Bible and serving in a ministry is to make others think well of you, it's an ephod. Even church can be an ephod. Check your heart. Why are you here? Is your heart bent towards Jesus, or is it bent towards you, the adoration of man, and your image? So is there a real ephod? Sure there is. It's Jesus. Jesus is the real ephod. But Jesus is not something that we wear. He's not a list that we keep. One of the interesting things about, especially the Old Testament, but about the Bible in general, is it's really not a list of virtues. But it's got the Ten Commandments. I know. But even that, the whole design of the Bible, everything is just to point you to Jesus. It's not a list of it's not a book of virtues. It's to point you to Jesus. Jesus is the real ephod, and he's not something we wear. He's not a list that we keep or a moral uh, code to live up to or a T-shirt or a bumper sticker or a good cause. He's none of those things. Jesus isn't something that necessarily makes us look good. In fact. To the world right now, Jesus makes us look kind of bad, and many people in the world just don't like Christians. By the way, Jesus said that would happen to us. He said it. You persecute me, you're gonna persecute you. So if you're coming to Jesus to look good, you're not gonna look good. That's not the point. He's not something to wear. Rather, Jesus is the God who makes us new creation and, and transforms us from the inside out. That's Jesus, and that's what we should be pointed to. That's the gospel. We're not good. He is. And so we need to give our lives to him. He's the one who makes us righteous and justified through and through, whether you're wearing a religious gown or an evening gown or a nightgown. It doesn't matter. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, no one according to an ephod. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. It's not us who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. For this truth in your word, and I just pray that we would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, appropriate this to our lives. Lord God, we thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray that as we finish our service this morning, that we would respond in joy and gratitude. Not only for who you are, but for what you've done. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.